You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 15th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Ahead on today's programme... That's rude name-calling, and I don't appreciate that type of language. And David Cameron needs to worry about his own country, and frankly, he can kiss my ass. That's the US Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. The UK's Foreign Secretary will be hoping for a warmer reception when he meets his Chinese counterpart Wang Yi this week. We'll have a hit of business news from Dubai and check in with the latest plans for the Paris Olympics opening ceremony, where there are concerns that the elegant buildings may not be robust enough to cope with the crowds. And then... Hello, Georgina. I am here for the Global Countdown, and today I'll take you on an emotional music journey to Hong Kong. Can't wait. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. U.S. media is reporting that the White House has warned Congress and American allies that Russia is making progress on a nuclear weapon designed to be launched into space. David Sanger is a White House and national security correspondent for the New York Times. He's been reporting on this story and he joins us now from the Munich Security Conference. Uh, David, many thanks for coming on the briefing. How much do we know about this Russian weapons program? Well, we know a lot about what they were planning to do long ago. And we don't know very much about what has triggered this most recent warning from the White House to allies and to Congress. There's nothing new about the idea of orbital nuclear weapons in space. There was a treaty signed, the Outer Space Treaty, in 1967. It was one of the first arms control treaties to ban nuclear weapons uh, in space. Uh, And it's been the subject of science fiction. Listeners of yours who uh, liked Star Trek will remember that in the late 1960s, there were episodes about uh, nuclear weapons in space. But the concern is that these are satellite killers and that as the United States and others have moved to swarms of satellites rather than just uh, individual highly expensive satellites, the Russians may be looking for a way to paralyze those all at once. And that would mean basically violating this nearly 50-year-old treaty. So the story began with comments by Ohio Republican Michael R. Turner. He urged the Biden administration to release the intelligence on this Russian weapons program. Can you tell us more about how, how that came to light? You know, he didn't even mention the Russian weapons program. As you know, there's a debate going on in Washington over a bill that would give support to uh, Ukraine, to Israel, some to Taiwan. Uh, It's a $95 billion uh, military aid package. It's passed the Senate. It's been stuck in the House. And Mr. Turner, who's a Republican who uh, runs the House Intelligence Committee, has actually been in favor of getting this thing through. We don't know if he turned out his somewhat cryptic statement in an effort to say, oh, there are big threats out there and, uh, you know, this is uh, something we should be paying attention to in hopes of drumming up support for it or if he had some other reason. 
But um, he did turn out this statement that basically said, I've seen evidence of a disturbing new military capability. I don't even think he used the word military that the administration should declassify. Um, they have not yet taken the bait. Uh, it was the Times and ABC News that discovered that this is what they were debating. And how has the White House reacted? They haven't, you know, because they, they haven't figured out yet whether or not they are going to declassify much on this. Um, there's been a lot written uh, over the years about uh, Russian efforts to uh, put together nuclear weapons that could be used in space. Um, the United States itself experimented with versions of this years ago. Um, the old Star Wars uh, anti-satellite uh, anti-missile systems, mostly anti-missile systems, uh, included space lasers that were nuclear-driven. It wasn't a nuclear explosion. Um, so this is not exactly a new idea or a new technology. But as you know, Vladimir Putin has walked away from just about every major arms control treaty, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. He suspended uh, cooperation on New START. Uh, which is the uh, the one remaining treaty that limits the number of of nuclear weapons that both the United States and the Russians um, deploy. Uh, he, there have been other treaties that they've walked away from. So it's not beyond the the realm of imagination that he would do the same with the Outer Space Treaty. I mean, and if he does let the New START treaty expire in February 2026, which is when that comes to an end, what would that mean for international security? So right now it does expire in uh, February 2026, as you say, and there is no automatic renewal the way there was last time. It was like there was a one-time uh, renewal, which uh, the Biden administration in its first days in office uh, enacted. It will last five years, of which we've gone through um, three already. So an entirely new treaty would have to be negotiated. It's almost impossible to imagine under these circumstances with Ukraine going on and so forth, the U.S. and the Russians sitting down to negotiate a new comprehensive nuclear arms treaty. And so the expectation is that two years from now, when Joe Biden may be in a second term or there may be an entirely new president, uh, that uh, that treaty will expire. And at that moment, there would be no limits on either the U.S. or the Russians on the number of weapons that they could deploy. How much ability does the U.S. have currently to counter such threats, specifically this one in space? None. And how urgent is the threat? I mean, is it something they should be trying to take action on right now? Well, you know, in calling this thing out, uh, that could put international pressure on Putin not to do the launch. And as long as he doesn't deploy it, uh, there's no violation of the treaty and no opening up of space for a new arms race. And think of it this way. If we had a nuclear weapon on the ground and we were aiming it up at a satellite orbiting uh, around uh, the Earth, that would be legal under the, um, under the Outer Space Treaty. 
if you had the same warhead and you were orbiting it around the Earth, that would be illegal. And one reason for that is we don't want to militarize space. And the second is you don't want to reduce your decision time that a president or any other leader would have about how to respond uh, to a nuclear attack on the ground. And you would have no real decision time if a weapon is already up in space. It's not like you can see a launch, you know, from 6,000 miles away. David, thank you very much indeed. That's David Sanger there. And now here's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Georgina. Israeli troops are inside Nasser Hospital in the southern Gaza city of Han Yunus, where the military claims the bodies of hostages taken by Hamas in October are being held. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu earlier said Israel's military will press ahead with an offensive against the militant group in Rafah. Police in Kansas City, Missouri have arrested three people after at least one person was killed and 21 wounded in a mass shooting. The victims had gathered at a rally to celebrate the results of Monday's Super Bowl football game. And Indonesia's Defence Minister Prabowo Subianto looks set to be the country's next president after unofficial vote counts put him ahead in Wednesday's election. The former army general has previously been linked with the killings of pro-democracy activists. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Georgina. Thank you, Sophie. The Munich Security Conference begins tomorrow. Among the 180 leading politicians, heads of state and experts in attendance, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi will take centre stage, marking his first overseas visit since 2023. He's due to meet the British Foreign Secretary, David Cameron, on the sidelines of the meeting. While Isabel Hilton is a visiting professor at King's College London's Lauer Institute and joins me now, Uh, Isabel, thanks for coming back on the show. When Cameron was Prime Minister of the UK, he heralded a golden era in relations with China. He hosted a state visit for President Xi Jinping and after leaving office the following year, he was involved in setting up a one billion US dollar UK China investment fund. Well, now he's back in government and he's holding the foreign brief. How's his attitude to Beijing changed? Well, uh, all of that, all of of what you describe uh, is absolutely right. And it caused a great deal of raised eyebrows at the time. What he says now, of course, is that um, circumstances have changed. And so his view of China has changed. Uh, But he was, you know, he went on working with China until very, very recently. His um, investment fund was not a huge success and was closed down. But he went on advocating for um, there was a Chinese infrastructure project in Sri Lanka, for example, which is highly controversial, uh, which he was actively involved in lobbying for. So the record is you know, pretty convincing that that Cameron was both, you know, um, very, very pro-China at the time. He got Britain involved in and got China involved in British uh, strategic infrastructure projects, which have we have taken quite a, a lot of time and effort to unscramble, including uh, nuclear power, for example. So, you know, it's it when he was reappointed, certainly the hardline were uh, right wing of the Tory party was pretty appalled because they have in the meantime moved into a much more confrontational position on China. And so how realistic or how deeply felt is his criticism of China now? 
Uh, well, uh, you'd, you'd have to ask him that. But I mean, there are certain positions that he has been obliged to take up. For example, uh, obviously, Xinjiang is still a live issue. Uh, the, the really uh, live issue in human rights is the ongoing trial of Jimmy Lai, who is a, a British citizen on trial in Hong Kong on national security charges. Jimmy Lai is a, is a, a media owner, uh, owner of Apple Daily, uh, born in China, but highly critical. And uh, this is a highly political trial and the British government should be taking a very active position. But the other um, more strategic questions, which uh, Cameron is going to have to talk to Wang Yi about, include the situation in in the Gulf uh, with, with the uh, Houthi attacks on shipping. Um, China has uh, negotiated an arrangement because of its closeness to Iran, whereby it simply flags up that these are Chinese vessels and they're not being attacked, whereas British and American vessels are subject to Houthi attack. Now, you know, if China wants to be a responsible player uh, in in global affairs, I, I think, you know, Cameron will have to call uh, Wang Yi out on that one. And the other big one is Ukraine. We're about to see some Chinese companies sanctioned for continuing to supply uh, dual-use technology to Russia. Um, this is a major threat to Europe and to the United Kingdom. And China is on the other side. So, you know, Cameron is boxed in here. If he's going to defend British interests, he really has to be more robust. And will he bring up the Uyghurs? Well, he probably will bring up the Uyghurs, but I don't think it's going to be very high on his list. You know, we pay lip service to the idea that British officials do raise human rights questions when they're talking to China. But I think that we all have a fairly realistic view of how firmly uh, these things are brought up. There is an added pressure over the Uyghurs because of sanctions on certain British members of parliament, um, including conservative members of parliament, uh, which again, you know, Cameron will be expected to raise with Wagi. And that those sanctions are connected to uh, the to the situation in Xinjiang. But China does not react well to pressure, external pressure on, on Xinjiang. So he, he will raise it. I doubt it will make a great deal of difference. I mean, how do you think Wang Yi will react? Well... You know, I, I'm sure that there was a very positive response in China to the news of Cameron's appointment because they consider him, you know, someone they know who had a very friendly attitude. Um, I'm sure they know a lot about him and, and could embarrass them if they chose to. So that's a kind of positive. Um, but in general terms, you know, since since Brexit, the UK has mattered a lot less to China than it, than it did when it was in a position to influence uh, EU policy. And if you remember at the G20 meeting uh, last year or the year before, um, in 2022, uh, Sunak's uh, meeting with Xi Jinping was was rather rudely cancelled, and he was one of um, not very many uh, Western leaders who did not get a meeting with Xi Jinping. So I think it kind of tells us what what importance or what weight. Uh, China gives to the UK's opinion now. So I'm not sure that this is going to change very much, even if we have a slightly warmer personal relationship between Wang Yi and, uh, and Cameron. Isabel, thank you very much indeed. That's Isabel Hilton there. And this is Monocle Radio.
You're back with The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. Let's get a roundup of some of the day's business stories now with Ewan Potts from Bloomberg. Ewan, Japan and the UK both slipped into recession at the end of last year. Can you break down what that means for us? Hi, Georgina. Yeah, we've had economic data from two of the world's biggest economies today. Output in the UK, as measured by GDP, shrank for a second consecutive quarter. That's the definition of a technical recession. UK GDP dropped by 0.3% in the fourth quarter, the final three months of last year. That followed on from a 0.1% contraction in the previous month, the summer months, and that left UK growth pretty much near zero for the year of 2023. I think it's probably fair to point out this is the definition of a technical recession. It's not really a recession um, that we uh, know and hate from uh, years past where there is uh, mass unemployment, house prices declining rapidly, uh, and all sorts of economic grief. Uh, and nobody's really expecting that in the UK or elsewhere in Europe. But it does mean that technically uh, the country was in a recession at the end of last year. It does uh, add to pressure on the Bank of England when it comes to cutting interest rates. Uh, we've had seen money markets boosting bets uh, on the scope for more monetary policy easing this year. Of course, rates at 5.25%. The debate is when uh, to start cutting those uh, so this is uh, sees uh, investors uh, increasing bets on those cuts being uh, faster uh, and coming sooner. The first one's still not expected until August in the UK because the UK has a rather stickier inflation than a number of other uh, economies. We're expecting uh, a rate cut from the Federal Reserve in the US uh, rather sooner than that. Now, while this uh, data was expected from the UK, Japan's reading for the same period was rather more of a surprise. GDP in Japan contracted at an annualised pace, they reported in a slightly uh, different way, of 0.4% in the final three months of last year. That means Japan also entered a recession at the end of last year. And the uh, problem in Japan is sluggish spending by both businesses and households. Uh, and as what it means for the Bank of Japan, well, it's similar but different in Japan. The debate in Japan is over when to exit negative interest rates. Japan is the last uh, economy in the world to still have negative rates. It's something they've had for a long time now. And the discussion at every meeting is when to shift out of these negative rates and bring them back to zero, back above zero. And of course, it adds pressure on that. Uh, it adds pressure to do that more slowly uh, because uh, the worries about the about the strength of the Japanese economy. Mm. Now, you've also been looking at how Europe's gearing up for more renewable energy. Yeah, this is a nice story about the ramping up of battery storage for Europe's electricity systems. Right across the continent, renewable capacity is being added at a rate of knots offshore and onshore wind and solar solar power. But the problem is that uh, when uh, the wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine, then your electricity supply uh, has gone away. Of course, it's a problem that's been debated uh, for years and years. Uh, And as we're adding more and more capacity, it is becoming more and more of a problem. One of the solutions to that is battery storage. It's something that's been talked about for a long time. Uh, An interesting report out today from Aurora Energy Research, which says there could be a seven-fold increase in battery capacity by 2030. So finally, we're installing these batteries. They think that by 2030, which is not so many years away now, we'll have a total of 50 gigawatts of batteries installed across Europe. Now, this is grid-scale battery storage. So these are massive farms of batteries which soak up the power when uh, it's been generated by renewables, and then you can then release it at the peak times, particularly between four and seven in the evening when everybody's uh, turning on their cookers at home, uh, got back from work. That's when the power consumption is highest. And when we turn to switch, tend to switch on the dirty fossil fuel powered 
power stations. So this is an alternative to that, the battery storage, which can uh, step in uh, and bridge that gap. Now, the report does say that some countries are doing much better than others. The UK, Italy and Ireland are top of the pack for installing battery storage at the moment. And Spain and Greece uh, are doing a reasonable job as well. But it does flag uh, a number of problems. There are regulatory issues with installing batteries. Uh, and there's also uh, a lot of problems with um, you know, getting connected to the grid. There's a lot of delay in many countries on uh, wiring up uh, all these uh, battery farms. But interesting that this is finally starting to happen across Europe. Ewan, thank you very much indeed. That's Ewan Potts from Bloomberg there. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Opening ceremony of the 2024 Olympics will break with tradition. For the first time, a Summer Olympic Games opening ceremony will take place outside of a stadium, this time along the River Seine, which is lined with buildings mostly constructed during the late 19th century, during the large-scale urban renovation of the city by Baron Haussmann. Claudia Jacob from Monocle's editorial team, who's also working on our upcoming Book of France, joins us for more. Claudia, many thanks for coming down to the studio. Now, many of the elegant zinc-roofed buildings have wrought iron balconies overlooking the river, and there are concerns that these historic architectural features might pose a safety risk. What's the issue? Yes, well, as you say, these ornate balconies have become rather symbolic of Haussmann's Paris, this large-scale urbanisation programme which modernised the city in the late 19th century. Um, But many of them haven't really been properly maintained over the past 150 years. There are genuine concerns that they won't be able to withstand the weight of the spectators who will gather on the balconies of these blocks which overlook the Seine. And these safety concerns really have a precedent. In May last year, two people were left seriously injured uh, when their fifth floor balcony gave way. So local authorities really need to make sure that Paris's um, quintessential architecture is really remembered for the right reasons. Yeah, so how are they going to do that? Well, um, yeah, there's uh, under French law, building owners are supposed to check their structures and make sure that this isn't um, you know, a safety risk, but we can see that this isn't happening in certain cases. So local authorities will need to work with the police to ensure that each structure is checked ahead of the games. They are made really only to withstand the weight of about three adults, um, but whether Parisians are going to respect this you know, rule for the opening ceremony really remains to be seen. And how ambitious is that opening ceremony? I mean, what are we talking about in terms of participants and spectators, many of whom will be, as you say, on those balconies? Yes, exactly. Uh, It's an extremely ambitious opening ceremony, as you say, will be an open-air ceremony, which will make it the largest ever held in the history of the Games. Crucially, there's currently no admission fee uh, for the majority of the spectators, which means the committee won't have such a handle over the numbers. And as a result, last week, the French Interior Minister said that they would limit the numbers to 300,000 spectators of which 100,000 would be paying. Um, and those people will be allowed to, op- to attend the opening ceremony, which is about half the size of what was already planned. So they have already had to scale back a little to um, cope with these um, enormous numbers of spectators who will come to the French capital. But even with that amount of people, I mean, security is obviously a concern along the river. Now, there are many booksellers who traditionally use that space. There was a suggestion that they'd be moved on. What's the latest on this? Yeah, so this is an issue that's been rumbling on since last summer. Um, The French police suggested that it would maybe be too dangerous for the bouquinistes, as they're known in France, um, to line the Seine with their books and their um, fragile wooden boxes. These are really part of Paris's history. I mean, they've seen, you know, they've weathered censorship, the Nazi occupation, pandemics, protests ever since the 17th century. Um, But on Tuesday, Michael, 
Macron did announce that this wouldn't be necessary. He called these booksellers a living heritage of the capital. And I think it's important to remember that Paris has a really robust literary heritage. And apart from the financial impact that this would actually have on the booksellers who line the Seine, um, it actually would have erased a very significant part of Paris's traditions and culture. And there was a genuine concern that actually these boxes wouldn't withstand the move um, outside of the Seine. Um, and yeah, it's on the Seine, this um, <clears throat> title, The Only River That Runs Between Two Bookshelves, which I think is a really nice way of summarising uh, why it is that Paris is so remembered for its literary heritage. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you've talked about the scale of the opening ceremony, but do we know what's planned for it? Yeah, so it, it'll be an open-air ceremony along the Seine, and essentially spectators will be able to see a procession of boats. There'll be one for each national delegation. Um, that's around 10,500 athletes altogether who will fill these boats. Um, and it's going to be a six-kilometre parade uh, along the Seine, which will hopefully give as many Parisians and tourists as possible the opportunity to watch this uh, ceremony because the Paris Games really want to be remembered as the Games which opened up the Olympics to as many people as possible, made it really accessible. And that is hopefully what this opening ceremony should do, withstanding these safety risks. Claudia, thank you very much indeed. That's Claudia Jacob there. And do look out for our upcoming Book of France. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. And finally... Fernando, you've got your own global countdown sting. <laughs> oh, yes. Very jazzy, very 80s. Best enjoyed with a drinking hand. We don't have one here, but it's fine. Uh, Fernando Augusto Pacheco is, as you I'm sure know, our senior correspondent and our music curator. Fernando, I'm a little bit concerned about mm. today's choice because you have, broke, you have sworn to break my heart. I will break your heart. It's going to be a very emotional one. Not all tracks, but that's traditional from Hong Kong. You know, it's been a while since I visited there for music reasons here in the Global Countdown. But yeah, it talks about, you know, family, deep love, even death. So be careful, Georgina. <laughs> Sorry, I mean, but it's beautiful. I mean, I have to say, they and they are proper musicians. That's what I like. They studied instruments, uh, opera. Um, for example, our next, uh, well, starting at number five, he's a legend. Um, I think he's 43. Uh, he sold out on the Royal Albert Hall for quite a few dates, actually, here in London. So he's managing to get out of Hong Kong as well. His name is Hins Chung, and the song is called Imaginary Fairground. Let's have a listen. And in the video for that song, I mean, if you want to cry a bit, it's set in London on a very rainy day. And for me, it talks about family, about perhaps migration as well, because I'm not saying that he did that, but there's a family who moved from Hong Kong to London and there's all kind of emotion, emotions that come with it. Yeah, that, it felt very kind of West End musically type thing, musical theatre sort of with, with, with that, that uh, chorus and verse and so on. We have quite a lot of that in, in Hong Kong, I have to say, Gigi. 
But, you know, I'm talking a lot about emotions here. But let's look at, you know, the dark side, perhaps even sexy, if I may say as well. Uh, this song is not, you know, don't worry, it's not a ballad. I think it's one of the most up-tempo ones. It's by Kung To. He used to be a, well, I believe he still is, a member of a boy band from Hong Kong called Mira. But he's going solo on this track. It's called Dark Moon. It's a song about craving for power, the duality of human nature. But you're, are you not hearing it's all about that bass, about yeah. that bass? <laughs> no, I think he's, was, he's talking about flying to the moon, but he's not, definitely not Frank Sinatra here. <laughs> yeah, but you're very right. Maybe he did sample that. But most importantly, King To, he was just voted in a recent poll as the third best looking man in the world. I think he's even ahead of Timothée Chalamet. I mean, I, I, you, know, you know what? I prefer him and Timothée. Okay, I'm so, going to have to look him up yes. just to, to see. Kunto. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, at number three. Okay, more emotions for you. This time is a duet between MC Chung and Panther Chan. The song's called, I mean, just look at the title, Permanent Damage. <laughs> He's saying, I already called a hundred times, I'm losing hopes, can't restart my life. The picture is always dark. Oh, oh God. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but he's, he's a great musician. I mean, and what I like, apparently he was invited to be in a couple of boy bands. He rejected. He said, you know what? I want to do solo. This is my music. So I think he's quite, you know, a brave man standing up to the music industry there. Absolutely. Number two. Number two. Let's see which emotions we're going to have now. I think this one is a slightly sunnier one. Uh, it's by Hong Kaho with Tinted Windows. Very cute. I mean, he's saying there's something wonderful behind the road of love. Uh, and not only he's, you know, he's a cool singer, but he's very fashionable. The brands love him. He's always wearing Fendi, Louis Vuitton. He does a lot of kind of, he goes to all the fashion shows. He's very young, but he's, I think he has a very keen interest in the fashion industry as well. And at number one. Number one, he is everywhere. He's considered one of the top names in Hong Kong music. Is Gareth T with Emergency Contact. And Gigi, I mean, I might have to blame Google Translate, but this is the lyrics I found. Who will contact you if I die on a glacier? The days of widowhood always bring tears to my eyes. It's quite, you know... Yeah, very it's, emotional. It is. And you know, the thing I is... I hope I'm getting this right. <laughs> but, but I often read it about how sometimes for people, the moment where it really sinks in that, that your relationship is kind of broken up is that, that really quite banal question, who's your emergency contact? Oh, God. And then you suddenly think, well, who is it? 
Who is it? Um, I just we just recently did a Meet the Writers program mm. about Heartbreak Hotel. So if anybody is feeling that they need help in that direction, particularly in the wake of, of Valentine's Day, and after listening to this global <laughs> and countdown, after listening to this global countdown, uh, then help is at hand. So please Good. do listen to that program. <laughs> uh, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you very much indeed. And that's all for this edition of the briefing, which was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Sophie Monahan Coombs. Our researcher was Naomi Akwe and our studio manager was Steph Chungu. The briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Georgina Godwin. Goodbye and thanks for listening. Thank you.